from the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond. You're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. Welcome back to Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. Continuing along with our airway and breathing theme, today I wanted to shift gears and discuss a trauma-related topic, specifically the deadly dozen of thoracic trauma. Now, it's no secret that injuries to the chest are very common and that the vast majority can be definitively treated without the need for surgery. In fact, only about 10 to 15% of patients with thoracic injuries will require operative intervention, and typically a chest tube is all that's needed or as aggressive as we need to get. So using an anatomic approach, we're going to first identify these clinical conditions or injuries, and second, categorize them as being either lethal injuries, meaning injuries we must identify during the course of our primary survey or our patients may die, or non-lethal slash hidden injuries. Non-lethal in the sense that they're not going to kill our patients immediately or if not identified during the first five minutes of our assessment, and hidden in the sense that we need to perform some other adjunct, be it a chest x-ray or CT to make the diagnosis. Just to put a disclaimer out there, this is meant to be an overview of thoracic trauma. In future rounds, we'll do a dedicated, deeper dive into the mechanisms, presentation, diagnosis, and management of patients with specific thoracic injuries. So we have three key objectives for today's round. Number one, I'm going to provide you with a brief overview of the initial assessment and management of the trauma patient. Our second objective is going to be to apply an anatomic-based approach to identifying the 12 most common thoracic injuries that we'll see in the trauma bay. Finally, by the end of rounds, you should have gained a deeper appreciation for the importance of the mechanism and physical exam findings in identifying the presence of life-threatening thoracic injuries. So I'm currently working on a team trauma vidcast that I'm planning to post to quarantine surgery in the next week, which reviews the ins and the outs of the initial assessment and management of trauma patients. But very quickly, I just wanted to review the phases or sequence of the initial assessment in order to put into context where along the continuum we should be identifying the so-called lethal six versus the hidden six that comprise the deadly dozen of thoracic trauma. Now, the first step in any trauma activation is always going to be preparation, which involves not just donning of PPE, but a quick huddle to introduce team members, assign roles and responsibilities, and ensure that we have contingency plans in place. Recognize, however, that this may not always be feasible, as may occur in the setting of a homeboy drop-off or a walk-in, where we literally are in the middle of it, for example. Once our patient arrives and a quick 45-second handoff is communicated from our pre-hospital friends to the trauma team, we want to jump right away into the primary survey with simultaneous resuscitation. And it's here that we're going to perform our ABCDE, which stands for airway with C-spine precautions, breathing and ventilation, circulation with hemorrhage control, disability or neurologic assessment, as well as exposure with the consideration for environmental concerns, specifically hypothermia. The key point here is that the presence of a lethal thoracic injury should be suspected and ideally identified during the primary survey on the basis of the initial vital signs and physical exam findings together with the mechanism of injury. Now, a huge pet peeve of mine, and I've got plenty of these, is when the physical exam gets played down because, you know, you, you can't hear anything in the trauma bay because it's so loud. I got to say, it, if there's more than one person speaking at any given time, you've got a problem in your trauma bay. Further, 
if team members are freaking out, yelling, or running around like chickens with their heads cut off, you've got an even more serious problem, specifically lack of leadership, and you've got a low-performance team. So these are things that need to be addressed early and upfront through simulation as well as team-based training. A second key point here is that as potentially life-threatening conditions are identified, we definitely want to treat these before moving on to the next step in our assessment and management. Following the ABCDE primary survey, we're going to perform our adjuncts to the primary survey, which usually includes everything from plain films to blood gases, catheter insertion, and EKG. Throughout the entirety of our initial assessment, we want to constantly reassess and reevaluate, especially when we perform an intervention in order to determine whether or not our intervention has had an effect. Following the adjuncts to the primary survey, we're going to perform our secondary survey, which is really just a complete head-to-toe exam to identify injuries, followed by a decision regarding the need for transfer to definitive care. So that brings us to our second objective, which is to use an anatomic approach to identifying common thoracic injuries. So let's start at the top and make our way down. The first life-threatening condition we want to identify in patients with potential thoracic trauma is airway obstruction. Personally, I like to think of A or airway problems as everything from the mouth to the thoracic inlet, and B or breathing slash chest problems as everything from the thoracic inlet down to the upper abdomen. Irrespective, how do we rule out an airway obstruction? Well, you ask the patient their name. If they can vocalize, the airway is patent. The most common cause of obstruction is definitely going to be a loss of airway reflexes due to depressed GCS, typically less than 8. However, we may also encounter airway obstruction due to, say, an expanding hematoma in the setting of a major vascular injury of the neck following a gunshot wound. The next structure we encounter on our way down the thorax is the tracheobronchial tree, and the injury we're worried about here is a tracheobronchial disruption, which, similar to its adjacent and neighboring structure, the esophagus, is very uncommon. Now, although both injuries sound bad, in general, neither of them are going to kill your patient immediately. Further, neither symptoms nor clinical exam findings are either sensitive or specific enough to result in immediate therapy. In the case of a tracheobronchial disruption, patients may have physical exam findings of massive subcutaneous emphysema, or if a chest tube is placed empirically, a massive continuous ongoing air leak, and maybe some decreased breath sounds. But a CT scan is usually the definitive test of choice to confirm the presence and location of this injury together with the fiber optic bronchoscopy, which should be done very, very carefully. Esophageal injuries are more common following penetrating mechanisms, specifically gunshot wounds, especially those that have a transmediastinal trajectory. And these are also hidden from diagnosis based by simply looking, listening, or feeling. Confirmation of an esophageal injury is traditionally done via a CT or standard barium, thin barium, or gastrographin esophagogram plus or minus endoscopy. And the combination of esophagogram with endoscopy increases the diagnostic yield. However, due to the overall rarity of these injuries, and because adjunctive tests are needed to confirm the presence, both tracheobronchial disruption and esophageal injuries belong to the hidden six thoracic injuries. As we move down the tracheobronchial tree to the lungs and lung parenchyma, particularly following a blunt mechanism of injury, patients may sustain pulmonary contusions. Now, are these immediately life-threatening or lethal, and will the physical exam help us identify the presence of pulmonary contusions? 
And the answer is no. Therefore, this goes into the same hidden six bucket along with tracheobronchial and esophageal injuries. The pleura enveloping the lungs and the associated pleural space is also subject to injury, specifically pneumothorax. And pneumothoraces come in all different shapes and sizes from simple or asymptomatic and occult pneumothoraces. And by occult pneumothorax, we mean one that's identified on CT scan, but not seen on chest x-ray, all the way to tension and open pneumothoraces. The latter two, tension and pneumo, are definitely two of the lethal thoracic injuries that we want to identify in the primary survey and institute immediate therapy for. Attention pneumothorax may result in cardiogenic or obstructive shock and occurs due to an injury or violation of the visceral pleura as may occur after a stab wound or rib fractures that puncture the nearby pleura, which results in a one-way valve whereby air escapes from the lung into the pleural space and gets stuck there and has nowhere to go, resulting in the accumulation of pressures in the intrapleural space. As this pressure increases, it's going to result in a variety of cardiopulmonary effects, which may be detected on the physical exam. And the underlying pathophysiology really involves tension physiology or a shift in the mediastinum. What occurs is, if you've ever seen what the vena cava looks like, it's a tissue paper high capacitance vessel, but essentially the heart twists on its axis, blood flow to the heart ceases, and because we have no preload, stroke volume goes down, cardiac output goes down, and the patient uh, subsequently may lose their pressure. So how does this present on physical exam, and what are the vital signs that we may see in a patient with attention pneumothorax? Let's start with the vitals. In terms of vitals, patients may be tachycardic. They may be tachypnic with an increased respirate. Eventually, they may develop hypotension as well as hypoxemia as manifested by low oxygen saturations. On physical exam, when we look, listen, feel, or inspect, auscultate, percuss, and palpate, patients may have asymmetric chest rise on inspection or distended JVD due to that lack of filling of the right heart. On auscultations, patients may have decreased breath sounds on the affected or ipsilateral side. On percussion, patients may have hyperresonance, uh, not hypertympanic. That's something that you find when you tap on someone's abdomen, whereas resonance is what we hear in the chest. And if you were to palpate, you may actually notice asymmetric chest rise or tracheal deviation to the contralateral side. Now, hypotension, hypoxemia, tracheal deviation, these are all very late signs. And in fact, the earliest, most sensitive signs are probably tachycardia and tachypnea. And again, these are nonspecific. In general, when we talk about tension pneumothoraces, the classic saying is that this is a clinical and not a radiologic or radiographic diagnosis, which I do agree with. But with that said, I have to say I've seen a quite a few tensions on both chest x-ray and scarily on CT as well. An open pneumothorax occurs when an injury to the chest wall, about two-thirds the size of the tracheobronchial tree, essentially really kind of messes up our normal pulmonary mechanics. Instead of air moving from airway opening down into the alveoli, air will preferentially move from the atmospheric pressure of zero at the level of the chest wall directly into the pleural space. 
In a previous episode, when we talked about pulmonary mechanics, we talked about the importance of the transpulmonary pressure, and that's the pressure gradient across the alveoli and into the pleural space. And this normally is a positive pressure. So at end inspiration, if alveolar pressure is zero, in general, pleural pressure is normally minus four or five centimeters of water. Zero minus minus four or five gives you a positive number. And that positive number, that transpulmonary pressure, is what keeps the lung expanded at end inspiration. Now, if you have air preferentially moving from zero atmospheric pressure at the chest wall directly into the pleural space, which we've already stated is minus four centimeters of water, well, that's going to result in complete collapse of the lung or whole lung atelectasis. And as you can imagine, this is going to have a significant impact on physiology. And the mechanisms underlying the problems here are ultimately going to be hypoxemia as well as hypercarbia. So the treatment for an open pneumothorax, also known as a sucking chest wound in the trauma bay, typically involves complete occlusion of the wound, typically with an occlusive dressing, and insertion of a chest tube placed to suction. Now, in the pre-hospital environment where chest tubes may not be available, typically we would advocate for placing an occlusive dressing that's completely sealed on three sides with one side left open or not sealed down. The whole idea here is that on inspiration, that negative pressure within the pleural space will not result in airflow into the pleural space from the atmosphere because of the occlusive dressing. Whereas on expiration, when we have positive intrathoracic pressure, air will preferentially move from the pleural space out of the chest through that occlusive dressing, through that one side that's left open. These injuries are certainly much more common following penetrating mechanisms. So in patients who have a close distance shotgun or large caliber handgun wound. And on physical exam, just by inspecting, it should be pretty obvious that a patient may be at risk for an open pneumothorax. Now, massive hemothorax, uh, sticking with the pleural space and lungs, is another life-threatening or lethal injury, which may occur following either a blunt or penetrating mechanism of injury, and a number of structures may be injured that could result in a massive hemothorax. Irrespective, the physical exam findings and vital signs typically will reveal a hypotensive patient who will be tachycardic, potentially tachypnic, and maybe with a low O2 sat. On inspection, when we look, listen, and feel, inspection is not going to reveal a heck of a lot. When you auscultate, unlike a tension pneumothorax, you're going to have decreased breath sounds. Again, unlike a tension pneumothorax, you'll have dullness to percussion. And palpation usually is not very helpful. If you were to look at their JVD, it might be flat. Again, of all the physical exam findings, probably JVD is the least helpful. In terms of how we define a massive hemothorax, this can be defined in one of two ways. Either we put a chest tube in because on the basis of our physical exam and typically together with a chest x-ray, we suspect that someone's got a hemothorax and it goes in and more than 1.5 or 2 liters comes out immediately and the patient is hypotensive, that buys them a golden ticket. What's the golden ticket? That's your ticket to the operating room right from the emergency room. 
Alternatively, if we put in a chest tube for a patient with a hemothorax, if the output initially isn't very high, but the chest tube output continues to be greater than 200 cc's over two to four hours, and the patient remains unstable or in a compensated form of shock, well, that patient's also going to go up to the operating room. Now, immediately adjacent to the lungs is the heart, and this may present with both a lethal or hidden injury. Following penetrating mechanisms, especially injuries involving the box or the cardiac box, that's an imaginary box drawn from the sternal notch out towards the mid-clavicles, down through the nipples, and across the subcostal margin towards the xiphoid, these patients are going to be at risk for cardiac tamponade, and this is one of the lethal six that we definitely want to identify during our primary survey. Vital signs may demonstrate a tachycardia as well as hypotension, and on physical exam, when we inspect, we may see elevated JVD due to inadequate filling of the heart. We may also auscultate and hear muffled heart sounds, and on exam, the patients may be clamped down. So Beck's triad, that sort of triad of hypotension, JVD, and muffled heart sounds uh, in the right setting, particularly penetrating mechanisms, should alert one to the presence of cardiac tamponade. Now, is the presence of Beck's triad in and of itself enough to justify a median sternotomy or if the patient crashes a resuscitative thoracotomy? In the first case, the answer is no, and in the second case, the answer is yes. In general, when we suspect that a patient has cardiac tamponade, we do want to take a few seconds just to put the ultrasound probe on and confirm it. This is really the gold standard test. I'm not talking about echo. I'm talking about FAST, a focused assessment using sonography for trauma. And you can do it either through a peristernal window or through a subxiphoid window. But we do want to confirm that there is fluid or blood surrounding the heart. In that case, the patient goes for a median sternotomy. Now, if the patient has Beck's triad, the right mechanism, and the patient crumps or loses their vitals or is unstable right in front of your eyes, we're not going to have time for sternotomy in these patients by themselves, a resuscitative thoracotomy. The other injury that affects the heart is a blunt cardiac injury. And again, this follows a blunt mechanism of injury. On physical exam, these patients may have no findings or maybe just a sinus tachycardia in terms of vitals. So this belongs to our hidden six. In order to make the diagnosis, we do need adjuncts. And this typically involves a combination of EKG and troponin. These two tests together have a negative predictive value of about 100%. Blunt thoracic aortic injury or traumatic aortic disruption, similar to tracheobronchial disruption, sounds downright frightening. But the fact of the matter is that if patients arrive alive to your ER with these injuries, provided that they're identified fairly expeditiously, overall patients will have a good outcome. Now, a lot of that will depend on the presence of concomitant injuries, which in the case of blunt thoracic injury usually includes a combination of TBI, pelvic fractures, solid organ injuries, and other bony or extremity fractures. There's really no good physical exam finding to tell you that yay or nay, someone's got a blunt thoracic aortic injury, and therefore this is one of those hidden six. The diagnostic modality of choice here is going to be CTA, and I'll refer you to Dr. Nicole Fox's paper, buddy of mine, uh, who wrote an East PMG back in 2014. It's a great read and reviews the literature not just for the diagnosis, but for the timing and approach to surgical management of patients with these injuries. 
Now, before we move to the chest wall and ribs, there is one more structure that separates the thoracic and abdominal cavities, and that is the diaphragm. In either case, whether this results from a blunt or penetrating mechanism, this is going to be a hidden injury. In the setting of blunt trauma, there's really not going to be any specific exam finding that's going to tell you that it's present or not. Typically, we'll make the diagnosis or the index of suspicion will be high following a high-velocity mechanism. And on chest x-ray, there may be opacification of the left costophrenic angle, or if the patient's got an NG tube, you might see that classic NG tube coiled up in the left hemithorax. The majority of these injuries are going to be diagnosed on CT scan. In the setting of penetrating trauma, particularly in patients with penetrating thoracoabdominal wounds on the left side, these injuries, again, are, are going to be occult. And so the typical algorithm here is to admit the patient for observation with a CT scan. And again, there's really no good sensitive diagnostic imaging modality to tell us whether or not a diaphragm injury is present or not. And after a period of observation, anywhere from 6 to 12 hours of stability without the development of sepsis or peritonitis, we'll take these patients for a diagnostic laparoscopy to rule out a diaphragm injury of which one in four patients will have one. And that brings us to our final injury, that is a flail chest. A flail chest occurs when there's two or more rib fractures in two or more places. This is one of those lethal six, and you don't need a chest x-ray to tell you that someone's got a flail segment or flail chest. On physical exam, what you're looking for on vital signs, tachycardia, these patients are typically in pain. They may have evidence of hypoxemia or low O2 sats. But on physical exam, when we look, listen, and feel... You may feel for some crepitus. More importantly, you want to look for the presence or absence of chest rise on the affected side and the presence or absence of a paradoxical or flail segment. And that essentially looks like a segment of the chest wall that collapses on inspiration, where we know that normally on inspiration, the chest wall and abdomen move out, whereas on expiration, both the chest wall and abdomen move in. And the key to management of these patients is really aggressive analgesia following identification. These patients certainly are at risk for respiratory embarrassment, both in the form of both hypoxemia as well as ventilatory failure and subsequent hypercapnia. So just to summarize, thoracic injuries or the deadly dozen of thoracic trauma can be divided into the lethal six and the hidden six. Once again, the lethal six injuries are airway obstruction, tension pneumothorax, open pneumothorax, massive hemothorax, cardiac tamponade, and flail chest. Whereas the hidden six injuries include tracheobronchial disruption, esophageal injury, pulmonary contusion, blunt cardiac injury, blunt thoracic aortic injury, and diaphragm injuries. Well, that does it for today's rounds. Thanks again for joining me and make sure to tune in next time as we'll move on to the second part of our acute respiratory failure discussion. If you like what you're hearing on rounds, please do visit us on iTunes and leave an encouraging and positive comment for me and the show. During times like this, I think we could all use, myself included, some positive reinforcement and an acknowledgement that we're doing some good in the lives of others. Until next time, stay safe, continue reading, and be healthy.